You're listening to The Good Dirt. I'm Byron Smith, and this is where we take the dirty, smelly, unwanted bits of what's happening in our world, give them some time, some air, some mixing, in short, some composting, to see if they might turn into fresh soil from which new life might spring. Today, I'm with Ben Thurley, CEO of International Power Fellowship Australia, and we're going to be talking about the open window, we're going to be looking at the uh, Coalition's recent budget, the ALP's climate policy, the school strike for climate, and thinking about how change happens in society. And we're recording today on Gadigal country, stolen land, land never ceded, land long beloved by God, and for tens of thousands of years, the home of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We dedicate ourselves to the task and privilege of caring for this land under Indigenous leadership, that it may remain and become a home for us and for all God's creatures. So today I'm here with Ben. Welcome, Ben. Hey, thanks. Good to have you. Uh, I've known Ben for a number of years, and he's a, a good friend. As I said, he's CEO of International Nepal Fellowship Australia. Uh, he's a few other things as well. I'll mention that in a minute. But can you tell us a little bit about INF Australia? Uh, INF Australia is a small organisation supporting a much larger organisation in Nepal that um, serves Nepali people through health, clinical work and community development. Some of the poorest, most vulnerable communities and people in Nepal being served by a Christian organisation in a predominantly Hindu nation. Great. And why Nepal? What's your connection there? Yeah, uh, it's one of those It's one of those stories that only makes sense as I look back. It had no clue how it was happening at the time, but... Uh, I was working in a role, a Christian advocacy role here in Australia with an organisation that supported some organisations working in community development in Nepal. And the opportunity to, I, I thought I was in my dream job, well I was, I thought I was in my dream job in Australia. And then the opportunity to uh, work in my dream job in Nepal, which was funnily enough the first country I'd ever been to outside of Australia as, mm. a, as a sort of, not even a, that young an adult. I was 28 Welcome when I left. Welcome to the rest of the world. Exactly. It's very vertical. Exactly. It really is I re- yeah, it's true if you steamrolled Nepal flat I reckon the surface area would be roughly the size of Australia even though it's smaller than Victoria yeah, in actual right. <laughs> uh, actual it's land like area. the coastline of Norway it, you stretch that out it's there, about as long as Australia that's, that's right Australia is um, just the pancake version of these other more interesting folded countries yeah yeah it, it's that's right most of its surface area is vertical um yeah so had that opportunity to work live and work in Nepal with young family uh, for a number of years, uh, working in advocacy with the Christian organisation. And that connection has never really gone away. So when the opportunity came up to work with INF here in Australia, I really, yeah, I jumped at it. Uh, you said with a young family, you have two kids and you're yep. married. Yeah. How did your kids find Nepal? Do they have any memories of that? Or is it just so far in the past that it's was lost on them? Yeah. How has that affected them, do you think, without so, you know, yeah. saying too much about them that they would be embarrassed? <laughs> Jake Jake was five months when we went, so he doesn't remember remember anything. the The main thing we remember from Jake is that we should have um, charged money for people taking photos of him because this you know tiny blonde blue eyed baby. When we would go to the zoo, the most in Jalakal, the most popular exhibit at the zoo, without hands down, was Jacob. Was I've that? got I've got photos of him surrounded by hordes of teenage girls and boys, take you know, getting selfies taken with him. A rare subspecies of Homo Ex- sapiens. Exactly. So he he kind of he doesn't really remember it, but he was much loved by everyone around him. Which so he had a, a good time. It gave. It was interesting when we came back and we moved into a. a pretty small house by Australian standards, with a, but with a backyard, which we hadn't had. 
uh, in Nepal because Kathmandu is a pretty crowded, um, very heavily developed city. He, he loved the house, he loved the yard. And we had a number of uh, his friends come over for the first time and several of them commented on how small our house was or why at first we didn't have a TV and why when we did have a TV it was so small. Hmm. And we yeah, kind of forgotten that, that those were the norms in, in Australia. And the first time somebody said that, Gabe said, but we've got this, we've got this garden. How great is this garden? It's just a fairly ordinary suburban backyard with some gum trees and some native plants and a handful of other things. But just being able to be outside in space connected with creation. So just a, a willingness to live simply, a willingness to enjoy those small but, but really profound gifts uh, is something that I think he's definitely carried with him. The two other things I noticed with him is he's very alert to people who might feel like or be outsiders. He's very mm. he's very responsive to and wanting to welcome people who might feel like they're being pushed a bit to the edge, both because that's I think what he's just what he's like, but also having experienced being an outsider, he wants to and and but having been welcomed by others in a strange place in a different culture and so on, he wants to help that happen for other people. And he just, yeah, he has lots of friends from lots of different cultures in a way that he's very comfortable, you know, joking with and moving amongst. So. Yeah, oh, great. Oh, that's, that's excellent to hear. Uh, and perhaps gives us a little illustration of a point we're going to go on to discuss a bit more uh, in this episode of how shifting from one context to another, what can seem normal and obvious and rational and sane can seem strange and foreign mm-hmm. um, and, and a bit weird in another context. And we're, you know, your children experience that culturally. Uh, we're going to be talking about it politically a bit later in the episode. You train as a teacher, but you've actually spent most of your life as an activist and a trainer focusing on poverty and climate change and the links between those and yep. the injustices that combine them. How did you get into justice work? What was it that drove you there? I mean, I've always had a, I've always had a kind of core concern for social justice and equity. My family's not hugely political, but but that was pretty much just a, that was part of the way we thought about who you were meant to be in the world. You were meant to be people who looked out for other people, who made sure that everyone had enough, who were a bit offended by some people having far too much, while while far too many have far too little. And then when I became a Christian as a young adult, the first book of the Bible I read off my own bat was the gospel of luke mm. and remembering virtually place to start. it really was well i remember thinking virtually every other page having to put it down and just ask myself is jesus serious about that about that radical commitment to the poor or sharing wealth and being both humbled fr- frankly frightened but also really actually quite excited because i i genuinely thought if if we took him as seriously as, as I think he's asking to be taken here, if Christians were that adventurous in their discipleship around poverty and justice and concern for the poor and the marginalised, what a witness that would be and what a transformative effect that could have in our local communities, in our national uh, and global environment. Mm. So I, I became kind of interested in supporting organisations that, that helped me think through and understand how to respond to those issues of poverty and justice. And then just fairly early on in that process as well, as I got to know some of the communities affected by poverty and became aware of how interlinked their vulnerability to environmental shocks and and degradation were and how much climate change, even when I started looking to this for myself in the 90s, how much of it was already obvious and happening. And that's just become more and more obvious since then. So for me... Sorry, it can't be neatly categorised just as a... 
a green issue. It's not an environmental issue. And I was actually... Polar bears and... Yeah, because I came into it from that angle, and maybe I was in a little bit of, of my own kind of bubble, it actually... Um, shocked me when I started finding Christians talking about it, dismissing it as a greeny left conspiracy. Mm. I had no idea that that, or even satanic conspiracy. I had no idea that that was a thing. Yeah, so I think there's some important life lessons there for those who might be, uh, you know, worried about their children growing up getting uh, perverted by these ideas about justice and uh, concern for the poor. It, it sounds like you should be keeping them away from Jesus and away from reading the Gospels in particular. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay, that's that's the way to be safe. Yeah, I, I'd say, look, to be on the safe side, avoid the Bible entirely. Um, mm-hmm. I, don't think there's a, I don't think there's a safe book in there if you want to keep indifferent to poverty and justice. Quality life advice there from Ben Thurley. Should I, should I be concerned that I may just have been quoted as saying, keep away from the Bible? I, I want to say... Really, really read the Bible. It's great. Yeah, it's 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 great that I get to not only host these conversations but also do the sound editing afterwards. Because yeah. you know you can. I feel like I may have just been trapped into into being quoted on on a podcast, telling people, advising people not to read the Bible. Yeah. I think I did start it. To be to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> to be on the safe side, avoid the Bible entirely. Uh, well, thank you for uh, helping us to get to know you a little bit. And uh, let's jump into our first segment. We uh, have three segments on this show. What's the big idea? What's going on? And what do we do? And our first segment aims to pick a concept from some field of study that is going to help us understand the news. It's going to help join the dots, illuminate things that get ignored or hidden, and really help the news come to life a bit more for us. And we're going to be focusing on a concept from political theory called the Overton Window, named after a guy, Overton, who invented it. And the idea, basic idea is that on most social or political issues, there's a spectrum of opinions from one extreme to another extreme. Uh, you know, often there's more than just a single axis to that. But if you simplify it down to a single axis that, uh, you know, you'll find people have a wide variety of opinions along that range. You can't just reduce it down to two or three, uh, but within that broad spectrum of possible positions people can take, they'll tend to cluster within a set range. And in particular, the media and other shapers of culture tend to act as though there's a, there's a much narrower range of opinions that are really rational and sane and normal and thinkable and that uh, sort of set the parameters for debate. And this is called the Overton window. Within that broad spectrum, there's a smaller window of positions that are considered defensible by a normal person. Hmm. Um, If you fall outside that, you first become a radical, then you become an extremist, Hmm. and then eventually you're just sort of so crazy. Either crazy or a threat to society. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But another point, one of the points that Overton was making in coming up with this concept is that that window is not set in stone. It's uh, a movable window uh, Mm. that you can actually push it and pull it um, and that social forces can do so and that things can change over time so that what was once considered weird or unthinkable can actually become normal uh, and vice versa. You can go the other way. And uh, one example that I uh, sometimes use to uh, talk about this is Malcolm Fraser, the former Australian Prime Minister from 1975 when Gough Whitlam was kicked out to 1983 
when he was uh, Prime Minister in the, the leader of the Liberal Party, leader of the coalition, uh, he implemented a series of immigration policies that were welcoming the, the uh, large number of irregular maritime arrivals, they'd be called today, um, from Vietnam after the conflict there, that were, uh, you know, in line with Australia's uh, international commitments under the Refugee Convention, were mm. humanitarian, were liberal in the sense of paying attention to the individual value of each human and their rights. And, uh, you know, that, that was the position of the coalition. But over the last few decades, Malcolm Fraser has found himself first out of line with his party and then ultimately squeezed off the edge of the political debate so that by the time of his death a few years ago, uh, he'd not only been kicked out of the Liberal Party, but he was so far to the left of the Australian Labor Party that he was actually campaigning for the Greens. And it wasn't that he'd massively changed his own opinions on the issue, but that the Overton window had shifted under him mm-hmm. um, and that his position, which had once been mainstream, had come to be seen as, as... Right, at the edge of that window. Yeah, at the very edge of what was thinkable. Yeah. And so that's that's the basic concept of the Overton window. But what's really interesting is how does that move? Mm. And so, Ben, I, I wonder if you had any thoughts on this. How do you think the Overton window mm. shifts? Yeah, uh, and just to fill it out with an example that will lead us into how how it shifts... The Jubilee 2000 debt campaign uh, in the end at the end of the 20th century took a concept which had been around for a long time. There'd been campaigners arguing that developing country, poor country debt was unsustainable, was unjust, and it needed to be cancelled and, and fair, fair mechanisms to work out that debt needed to be put in place. They'd been campaigning on that for decades with very little success because the inst- both the institutions obviously... Uh, uh, International Monetary Fund, World Bank, and, and national governments had a had a financial interest in maintaining uh, interest repayments, but also the the concepts around debt, the thinking, the Overton window was set around that very narrow frame of debts are sacred contracts entered into mutually by two parties, and they both need to be held to those, even where they become difficult. And to cancel debt is to invoke a thing called moral hazard. You run the risk of rewarding bad behavior so governments who borrowed money badly will will feel like they can just keep doing that knowing that they'll eventually have their debts cancelled future governments will look at past cancellations and just say well we can borrow recklessly there's very little evidence that that happens but that was the that was the frame around which that entire conversation occurred a group of um, christian academics primarily in the uk and then a global movement who picked up on the concept of jubilee from a book in the bible that doesn't on the face of it appeared to have a huge amount to do with justice, the book of Leviticus, took that concept of jubilee, of cancellation of debt, and said we should mark the turn of the millennium, the year 2000, with a cancellation of this unjust, unsustainable debt which harms the poorest of the poor. And within the space of a a very small number of years, you know, half a decade, from it's impossible to do more than tinker at the margins with poor country debt to the World Bank and the IMF and most major debtor nations recognizing that they actually needed to cancel not all sadly it didn't fully achieve the campaign goals but a very significant proportion of poor country debt so for me it shifted and it shifted quite quickly and a few of the things that led to that were an idea a compelling idea and vision so a vision for something which is better and obviously better Mm -hmm. a compelling hook or a way of thinking about it that that energized people so it had been a campaign that a lot of people had worked on and credit to them for working on it for that long when it got linked to the idea of jubilee and a moral shift at the time of of the 2000 uh, the year 2000 
that energised and excited a whole new constituency of people who got active around it. And then a time where you can make progress, something that can be done. And so they, they identified a handful of international meetings, G8, G7 meetings around the world, and a handful of institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, who needed to be targeted for change. And they identified the opportunities where massive mobilisation and behind the scenes lobbying and policy work could be brought together to put maximum pressure on those groups and institutions. So a vision, um, compelling ideas, people power, good policy, and timeliness. Yeah, well, that's quite a compelling picture of how change can happen and how the urban window is more malleable than most of us think. Yeah. Uh, it can sometimes feel like, uh, you know, some of the perennial issues that we face and that, uh, you know, it can be overwhelming because you think, well, what can one person do? Yeah. Um, and, of course, the, the advice that I always give in response to that is the same as Bill McKibben, which is the first thing you can do as an individual is to stop being an individual. Yeah. But you can feel overwhelmed by these uh, seemingly intractable problems. And yet we have examples from history, many examples of quite rapid and profound social, cultural, economic, political changes uh, shifting in a much shorter space of time than people expected. Yeah. I mean, I also think of the global campaign to divest from fossil fuels mm -hmm. that you know, it was only launched six years ago and at the time was either ignored or laughed at as uh, reckless and morally irresponsible to not be maximising profits and as though fund managers would ever do anything other than just pick the most profitable options. And, you know, obviously it would be much better to go and persuade the fossil fuel companies through shareholder activism and, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, ridiculed on the front pages of the newspapers when... Yeah. It first started to be taken seriously by some of the universities. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think when ANU first announced even a very, very modest move away from um, investments in the dirtiest forms of energy, uh, m the majority of the cabinet at the time hmm. spoke out against them. Yeah. You know, r ridiculing uh, an independent entities. Uh, financial decisions, in the, yeah. investment decisions. Yeah, the treasure of the nation of the day is, yeah. Yeah, very, very ironically for a, a party whose, you know, fundamental ideology is that uh, rational actors working in the best interests of their own investments will make better decisions than the government. Yeah. You, you had the spectacle of the government berating yeah. an independent institution for the choices it was making. But the point was that mm. uh, in just six years, there's been quite a significant shift in opinion around this to the point where now there are over a thousand institutional investors who have uh, divested or committed to divesting who collectively manage over 11 trillion dollars australian in funds and this is now taken very seriously by fossil fuel companies it's it's identified in the reports as a material risk not just the loss of a social license but actually the loss of the funds themselves are now becoming more significant when it mm. began it was just and even its its main supporters spoke of it as a symbolic move to remove the social license to make it less easy for politicians to be seen shaking the hands of uh, coal executives but now it's actually becoming a material threat to some mm. of these companies that's yep. another example of a fairly yep. rapid social shift a company is now expected to to report on their climate and carbon-related risk exposure in major major reports. Yeah. Um, and if they don't have if they don't have that risk assessment, serious questions being asked by the investors as to why they don't and what they intend to do about it. Yeah. That's right. And uh, increasingly, in some legal circles, discussion about whether the executives of fossil fuel companies may be held legally liable for some of the harms that they are causing as they Imagine. knowingly make 
choices that uh, bring about you know very widespread environmental and social harms. Yeah. Uh, so that again, that idea that you could have the executives from a big dirty company facing some kind of penalty uh, as a result of their choices to pursue their, their dirty energy would have been laughable. Yeah. Um, and still is treated by many people as a bit of a joke. I had a conversation with someone just this week about it. Um, but actually, it's it's another one of those ideas that may be gaining a bit of traction. Yeah. So Overton Windows can shift. And it's a complex story about how they do. Social change isn't straightforward. It's not something that happens automatically or that uh, you can always write a neat formula for. I think Ben's very helpfully summarized some of the elements that came together in uh, one particular instance and that are often important in pursuing social change. But notice that none of those elements were mechanistically applied no. where, you know, A plus B plus C results in the change you want to see. No. And you have, I mean, your, your reference to the cabinet attacking uh, ANU for its investment or divestment decision is an example of groups who have a vested interest in, in maintaining the window exactly where it is and will use all the power they have to keep it there or even shift it in a way that you don't think is helpful. Yeah. And, there are, and there are unpredictable you know, rebound effects that can happen. We've, tr- Trump's election in the States has shifted the Overton window on a, in a range of ways mm. that, are, that are quite harmful to a, a whole lot of people, communities and, and the environment and ecosystems on which we all depend. And yet there's a there's a rebound effect occurring where a lot of people who formerly might have been a bit depoliticized and a bit de-energized are becoming increasingly motivated in reaction against what Trump is doing. So there's, it's quite possible that what appears to be now uh, a really harmful kind of move of the Overton window around a range of things will move again in response. Yes, making predictions is difficult, especially about the future, as they say, yeah. but blowback or the rebound effect is can also be a real thing. The Overton window really represents the current balance of power on a given issue. There are always going to be a multiplicity of different viewpoints on a particular question and where there are uh, large amounts of money or other powerful interests at stake then there'll be a bit of a wrestle over that question and the Overton window is really one way of saying who's currently winning that wrestle, what's mm. the, the current accepted mm. wisdom, which doesn't always correspond to what is, uh, from an objective point of view, most rational or sane, if there is such a thing as an objective view of rationality. But it really represents, this is what the interests of those who are most able to control the narrative at this point would like us to think are, are, the, are the acceptable boundaries yeah. of, of debate and yeah. policy making. Yeah. yeah. Let's jump into an interlude called Pet Peeve. Here I'm going to ask Ben, what's one thing about the news media that bugs you? Is there some detail they keep getting wrong or some practice they do that you think distorts things or something that keeps getting forgotten? What is it that really annoys you about the news media that you are exposed to on a regular basis? I think one of the things that peeves me most is even in serious media outlets who have a commitment to honesty, accuracy, integrity in their news coverage and are attempting to cover through investigative journalism or, or in other ways, attempting to cover significant and serious stories, just how much time and energy still gets put into either fairly frivolous Topics that given you know, that get given equal page weight against something really critical, or even the assumption that if you're representing a point of view, you have to represent, you have to find an alternative 
point of view to represent or otherwise you're somehow being unfair Hmm. which on which on some issues uh, yes that probably is important actually but on a lot of issues you don't need to find the gun nut advocate in Australia to be a, a counterweight to your argument that we shouldn't change Australian gun laws you just don't need to do it they're so marginal their their interests are so skewed against the common good and against the best interests of most Australians that you just say it's not re- it's not relevant to hear their perspective. Mm. But I mean, this is really another instance of the Overton window, isn't it? That the news coverage that is self consciously trying to be balanced yeah. tries to place itself in the centre of the Overton window and so finds. any story or opinion that seems to fall away from that centre needs to be balanced by something on the other edge. And so if a news media outlet considers that the proper balance comes from someone whose opinion seems either fundamentally disconnected from reality or someone whose uh, values and interests are fundamentally disconnected from the common good, then that itself, I think, is revealing of where the Overton window lies. Yeah. Because you could balance a story on gun regulation with someone who thinks we ought to eradicate all guns entirely. You know, and you have a debate between someone who thinks let's eliminate all firearms and someone who thinks we just ought to regulate them better. Yeah. So what counts as the centre yeah. is itself a matter of con- contestation. There's no fixed point yeah. um, of neutrality yeah. that the news media can occupy and, yeah. and merely just get a spokesperson from both sides. Yeah. This is always more than just two sides. Yeah. The Overton window makes it look like yeah. there are two sides, but there are always more than two. And it's actively created and maintained all the time. It's not just, as you said in the introduction, it's not a fixed window. It requires maintenance and active intervention by interest groups, lobby groups, politicians, other interests, the media themselves making the, the choices, so often under pressure from those other interests. Yeah. yeah, or under their own commercial pressure, because the, the pursuit of balance can itself be a bit of a smokescreen for just trying to get more attention by presenting conflict. Of course, conflict sells. People yeah. like watching conflict. Yeah. And so if you actually find a slightly more extreme position to rebut your main proponent, then there you go. Hey, presto, instant conflict and better sales for your outlet. So sometimes the profit motive can reinforce the idea of the Overton window, can provide a profit incentive for media Mm organisations to treat any position as needing contestation in a way that is going to be attractive and attention-grabbing, whether or not that is actually the most relevant part of the debate. That's certainly something we've seen in the climate space for many years, that uh, with with many media organisations having a false balance where the any scientific report or finding or new study, they feel they needed to balance that with a climate denier, someone who's in denial of the mainstream understanding of climate science, who falls outside the 97% yeah. of yeah. most actively researching experts. And that's, that is a false balance because they don't feel the need to provide balance to an astronomer who's just found a new uh, exoplanet by interviewing a flat earther who thinks that the, the stars are pinned to the sky with staples. Yeah, that's not actually what you think, is it, Byron? No, it's it's obviously something a bit firmer than Good. staples right. because when it rains, the, <laughs> they don't, they the, don't the just... stars would yeah. get all soggy and yeah. fall off. Slightly less significant but still serious a pet peeve for Guardian readers is mm-hmm. the Guardian's unilateral decision to publish acronyms with only the first letter capitalised. So <laughs> I, I don't... I don't quite know how one media outlet just decides to make that unilateral decision about how acronyms look on the page. 
Uh, I'm starting to get used to it, which is just my own personal Overton window shifting. But um, it was a pet peeve for some time. And uh, anyone who has any influence with The Guardian, I'd like to know why they did it and would they consider not doing it anymore. Mm. Well, interestingly, there are some words in common usage. We're way off into the weeds now, but some words in common usage that began as acronyms and their, their origin as an acronym has been forgotten, such as laser. Yes, indeed. And there are others, but they're not springing to mind right now. <laughs> Which is probably a good moment to move on. Our second segment, What's Going On? Where we take a handful of news stories and see what we can discover about them. The goal here isn't to just rehash talking points uh, or repeat headlines, but to actually take stories that we've noticed that seem to us to be of more than trivial importance. Not just the flash in the pan, not just the latest scandal or gaffe, but something that affects a large number of people or that is related to some of the driving forces that are bringing about change in society. In addition to stories that may not have got the attention they deserve. Stories that might not have been on the front page, or if they were on the front page, there are aspects to them that weren't really discussed. And so we're going to be beginning this second segment with a story that has certainly been on the front pages for the last little while, and that is the Coalition's budget launch that in some ways wasn't really a budget, was it, Ben? It wasn't, uh, not just because it's happening in April, and that hasn't happened for quite some time, having a budget that didn't occur in May. In fact, I think this is the first budget ever to occur in April, but no, it's it, large parts of uh, large parts of it won't be legislated um, because it's essentially a campaign launch. That's right. And so this is a combination of two factors at play here. One is our proximity to the next election, but second is the government's incredibly precarious position in the lower house that has led them to almost entirely cease parliament sitting for this year. I think this is the second week of parliament sitting. Yeah. Um, or we've only seen two weeks of, of parliament sitting uh, and are probably only going to get two weeks in the year until the election, yeah. which itself is a historical first yeah. that hasn't really received the attention that it deserves. It's quite a brazen undermining of the responsibility of Parliament to legislate and review and, you know, the functions of Parliament have really been thwarted by the government because it has lost the ability to ensure that it can maintain control of the agenda. Yeah. And in more uh, normal circumstances or in, in a day with a government less willing to flout political convention, this may have been taken as a vote of no confidence in the government and we would have gone to an election earlier. But be that as it may, we, we now have this budget that is not going to be legislated and is really a series of promises, and so that's why we're calling it, as much a campaign launch as a budget. Um, and what did you notice about the budget? What, was, what to you was one of the major themes? Yeah, for me, it really got summed up in a lot of the promotional photographs of the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, in black and white and with the slogan, back in black, that this budget is all about the coalition being able to fulfill their surplus fetish and say, we have, well, not actually delivered, but we are projected to deliver within you know a relatively short space of time, a surplus and everything has been geared around being able to say that they've done that, regardless of the cost to particular groups, regardless of lack of interest in you know, major environmental issues and so on. So that for me is the, is the big thing out of this budget. It's their one chance to try to reclaim their sound economic management crown and say, well, we did what no other government has been able to do since whenever the last surplus was delivered. 
Yeah, now this is despite the fact that each time I believe the government has brought down a budget with projections for growth in the coming years, they have pretty wildly overestimated what level of growth we will experience. So much cynicism in one so young, Byron. There there, there are real questions as to whether or not this this surplus would even occur under the government's own assumptions, um, which include that there won't be a major economic disruption between uh, now and the next few years. He's looking at you, Brexit. But also there's an assumption built into the surplus fetish that uh, surpluses are the the goal of government. There's a um, frequently cited analogy to household economic management that we we can't live beyond our means. And I'm one of the first to admit that I'm not an expert in economics, but when I speak to people who are, this is very often the point that they want to criticise first, that governments are very different things to households Households can't print their own money. Households don't have a responsibility to uh, address threats to the nation. Households don't have anything like the flexibility and resources available to a government. Households don't set the conditions for the rest of the economy. And so to draw that analogy is to obscure more than it illuminates. That's perhaps a discussion for another day. Let's explore this surplus fetish a little more and particularly its implications. What have they actually had to do? Who have they had to rob from to create this picture of a coming surplus? Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And who, within the constraints of a budget projected to get back towards surplus in the next three years, who have they chosen to reward Mm. um, as well as, as who they've robbed from? Um, because yeah, I mean, there's a range of a range of policy initiatives that you don't see in this budget. You don't see any new programs relating to indigenous indigenous Australians. The Indigenous Affairs Minister was questioned on this. All he could say is there are the ongoing programs we've previously budgeted. So nothing for Indigenous Australians. No programs related to them. Aid, despite very little progress having been made on closing the gap. As one of the high priorities That's nominated right. by this government. And the government, even at the launch of the report um, last year, admitting that the progress was less than they had wanted to see. Yep, absolutely. So we see aid slip again. So Foreign aid. Yep, projected to see an increase at the end of the forward estimate, so in three years' time. But that increase will only just be a restoration of indexation. So it will only just be an agreement to start increasing aid by the amount of uh, that inflation is occurring. So essentially keeping in real terms that will keep aid jogging in place again. But and, and that's back that's down at a level lower than has been the case since Australia began its aid program. As a proportion as a proportion of our, of our economy, as a, a economy. in terms of our actual capacity to be generous, yes, we've never been less generous. And our spending now at around 0.21% of gross national income, which will fall again in the next two years, now puts us among donors who are pretty much either either new aid donor nations like South Korea or nations either in crisis or uh, so we're talking Italy, we're talking the Czech Republic. So that's now where we sit, and and the US, who have historically actually been a very, very ungenerous aid-giving nation. So we are giving aid as if we were either in economic crisis or ourselves a new donor trying to find our way in a world where what can we do to help? 
or perhaps more tellingly, as though we were the United States. Or as though we were the United States. Which, None, which may actually be more... Probably closer to the, the truth. Yeah, but in terms, of our, in terms of our economy and our capacity to contribute... Yeah, we, we are behaving as if we are something we're not. Yeah. Um, we're not in crisis. We're not a new donor. And even when we look at countries that are in some sense of crisis, uh, I mentioned the UK earlier, right. somewhat tongue-in-cheek with Brexit coming up, but yeah. throughout the period of the Conservatives' austerity measures over the last decade, they ring-fenced uh, their foreign aid and yeah. have not reduced the amount that they are contributing, yeah. and they have left that pegged at 0.7% of yeah. GNI, which is, that is gross national income, uh, with Australia down at 0.21, so vastly different, and has remained a high priority even amidst austerity. I've got plenty of less flattering things to say about David Cameron, but yeah. that is something that he put on the table and, and stuck to. Yeah, and his words, which which I've quoted and, and so many of us in the area have quoted at or, or in relation to our government about, he stated, we will not balance our books on the backs of the poorest people. Mm. And you would hope, uh, but it hasn't turned out to be the case, that our government would have the same moral clarity around that, but yeah, have proven to be pretty impervious to shame along those lines. Yeah, despite, um, despite us having joined the UK in pledging to reach that amount of 0.7, um, as virtually all the wealthy nations of the world did back in the 1990s. Indeed. Uh, making a joint pledge yeah. to increase foreign aid to 0.7%. That's, that's why I mentioned that figure. That's yep. sort of the benchmark. And we, we're talking point. Seven percent. This is less than one percent. Yeah. When Australians are asked what proportion should we be giving to aid, what proportion are we giving to aid, they vastly overestimate both amounts. Yeah. So, uh, or rather, they vastly overestimate how much we are currently giving. And when they're asked what we should be giving, they cite a much lower figure, but one that's still often more than an order of magnitude, more than ten times larger than what we actually give. Yes. So, if you go with their desire to cut aid, then every time aid is cut there is cheering. Yeah. But if you actually go with the numbers of what they think we should be giving to aid, we ought to be going very rapidly in the opposite direction. Yeah. People think we ought to be much, much more generous than we, we truly are. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, a convenient, it's a convenient area of cuts for an Australian government to target because there's no constituency within Australia directly affected by it. So there are any, any other cut you want to make to pensions, to superannuation, to tax rebates, etc. There is a constituency in Australia directly affected who may have the capacity to organise and vocalise their discontent in a way that generates wider discontent with policy. There are organisations who support international aid and there are donors to those organisations, but none of them are personally affected. Their lives, their livelihoods aren't hit. And it fits two other aspects to the to the um, surplus fetish in my mind. There's the the fact that it's not affecting Australians, so you can point to it being regrettable. But we're looking after our own first. Um, we're getting our own backyard in order before. And this is a government that actually promised that when they returned to surplus, they would start increasing aid. We've yet to see that happen. That was the excuse they used. That was the excuse they used to begin that. Again, yeah, to the, begin the, the cuts. cuts in yeah. Governments use these kind of cuts, cuts on poor, vulnerable, marginalised people who don't have the capacity to organise powerful resistance against those cuts as a way of signalling seriousness of intent. You know, we are, you can tell we're a serious government because we're prepared to make the hard choices. We regret that we cut this. This is what they'll say. Um, we regret that we had to cut in this area, but you can tell that we're a serious government, good economic managers, committed to returning the economy to surplus because we are prepared to make these cuts. That, that's the rhetoric that gets used, but I actually question whether that's uh, how it's heard. I think there's a dog whistle happening oh, yeah. here, and it relates back to one of our previous big ideas a few episodes ago 
of just world belief that was discussed with Brooke Prentice back on episode two, the idea that the world is fundamentally just and that people get what they deserve, which right. means that if you are poor, in some sense, you mm. deserve that. You're lazy, you're criminal, yeah. you have done things that have led you to be or to remain poor. And so any move by governments to seek to reverse that, to seek to address the needs of those in poverty is seen as immoral, mm. is seen as challenging the idea that the world is fundamentally just, is seen as acknowledging that perhaps there are some structural imbalances that lead some people to be behind the eight ball from the start. Mm. And to acknowledge that is to threaten the, the stability and the coherence of the world that goes along with just world belief. And so there's a, a strong motivation for people to want to see the poor punished. And I think that this is also at play in uh, the surplus fetish. It's not simply that we think surplus is a good idea, but the, the cuts aren't just necessary to achieve surplus. I sometimes think it's the other way around. The surplus is necessary to justify the cuts. Mm -hmm. And the cuts are what, what are the message that's really being sent, which is we are going to uphold the moral universe that you subscribe to in which people get what they deserve. The winners will get rewarded with lower tax and the losers will have even the little that they have taken away from them. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. Well made. Uh, and it's not just aid. And it's not just our First Nations brothers and sisters. Uh, where else are these cuts hitting? I mean, you, you've mentioned New Start allowance. And despite every political party acknowledging at some level that it's too low, every business and industry group in Australia normally rely, you know, to be firmly relied on to argue against increases in welfare payments and so on, arguing that it's too low. Uh, and yet, yet another year, and I think... 25. 25, 25 successive years in which, yeah, in which New Start has not been increased. Yeah, and that, that's not, has just kept up with inflation, but actually has not been increased, has, which is effectively a cut. Yeah, constant cuts. Yeah. Yeah, which, which definitely feeds into our punish the poor and signal, yeah. and signal a particular moral universe that you want to create and yes, maintain you don't have a job, in your budget. Because you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. You should just go out and Yeah. And the and, and the way to motivate you to try harder is to mm. is to cut to ensure that you live on such in such desperate circumstances that you have no choice but to try to find work. Whether or not there's work available, whether it's accessible to you, whether you now have the money to get the training to write the write and print the C V, get the transport to the interviews and so on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a whole further discussion here, perhaps for another episode, about whether the capitalism underpinning this ideology or, or the other way around, that the, the capitalism that this just world belief uh, helps to justify can in any sense be spoken of as voluntary, mm. um, when what is really threatened is your ability to mm. feed yourself and, mm. and, you know, have shelter. So, yes, New Start, also the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Yeah. That uh, you know, a big slab of the funds that now make it look like we We're might have to a surplus, surplus yeah. in a few years, yeah. um, uh, because the uh, money that was allocated to NDIS hasn't all been spent. Yeah, and this isn't because there are fewer people who need it, or because there have been more people with disabilities who have managed to find yeah. gainful employment and don't need don't support need anymore. Yep. Uh, it, it's simply because access to the program is. Has, has been, been made too difficult. Yeah. You know, barriers have been deliberately put in the way yeah. of people who need that funding all being able to get it. Yeah. Um, there's been foot dragging um, and there's been unnecessary complexity and barriers that, that, that have led to the underspend there that, that is now being banked as a saving rather than being seen as a yeah. an outstanding debt still yeah. owed to those who are, are really some of the most 
in need in our society. Yeah. And single parents, other welfare recipients, um, obviously a lot of media coverage in the last year of Centrelink's robo-debt and the horrendous burden that puts on already vulnerable people to either prove that they actually don't have it. The burden of proof falls on them to prove that they don't have a debt if if an error has been made or to find ways to repay what may well be an unjust debt uh, under yeah really, really uh, heavy threat of sanction. That's right. And some of those savings are through the further extension of that kind of approach to welfare, where it's, it's sort of you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent. Yeah. And the automation of the checking processes that you know have been shown in a very large number of cases to be inaccurate. And then the onus is on you to show that that was inaccurate. Yeah. So yeah, it, it is a budget for the already wealthy, built to a very significant extent from taking from those who have already far too little. Yeah, and much has been said about the tax cuts, the benefit of those, going to those who already have more than average. But I think there's another whole area here, and this is where I want to focus the rest of our discussion in this segment on, perhaps, which is climate policy and how this relates to the budget, because this too is a way that the budget is a cut that affects those most vulnerable. Hmm. Because as you were discussing right back at the start when we were hearing about your work in Nepal, climate change is not just an environmental issue, it's an issue of justice that first and hardest hits those who are least able to afford it. Hmm. And so any reduction in the climate ambition of a government, any lessening of our attempts to get this problem under control worsens the situation of the global poor and those who are most vulnerable in society. So let's talk about the implications in the budget. Mm. Did you want to say something about the Emissions Reduction Fund? Yeah, well, I I was still just trying to get my head around you saying climate policy and budget in the same sentence, Mm. as if those were things that actually went together at the moment in Australia. And just to, just to add one thing to the to the framing, because while I do come at this from a perspective of concern about global justice and justice for particularly vulnerable people and communities, this is a fundamental failing of an Australian government to act for the security and safety of its people. You know, I care passionately about Pacific Island communities um, being threatened by sea level rise, care passionately about communities in Nepal being hit by changing weather patterns, increased risk of flood and landslide, a whole range of, of impacts that, are, as you say, are hitting the poorest people first and worst. But for the government to completely abrogate its responsibility to protect Australian communities facing increased heat waves, more intense and longer bushfire risk periods. Yeah. Rising seas. Rising sea levels. Changing patterns of precipitation, the drying out of the Murray-Darling Basin. Yeah. uh, As we discussed last episode with uh, Miriam Pepper. There are many climate impacts in Australia. This is a national security issue. It's not just an international justice issue. It's not just a we care about the poor outside of our, our borders. It's a fundamental responsibility of an Australian government to protect its people from threats and harms. And this government is walking rapidly away from living up to that responsibility. So the Emissions Reduction Fund, which is the last last remaining element of, of the Abbott government's climate policy, as far as I can make out really, well, other than the ones that they couldn't legislate to get rid of. They attempted multiple times to get rid of the Climate Change Authority, for example. They managed to neutralise that in other ways. Right. I've had a whole post on that recently, right. just summarising the history yeah. of how they effectively removed the climate change and gutted the Climate Change Authority as an independent yeah. authority. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point. The governments will find a way to do what they want to do 
even if they can't quite manage it via legislation, they still have control of the purse strings, the regulations, etc. Staffing decisions, hiring and firing. Yeah, so the, the uh, Emissions Reduction Fund was the commitment to spend money in a reverse auction scenario where farmers and industries and so on would bid for funding to reduce emissions that would otherwise have occurred, maybe by changing a farming practice or upgrading a, a plant so that it emits less and so on. And the government claims that this has been massive, massively successful in reducing emissions at low cost. I don't think either of those things has turned out to be true. But this it's government... certainly challenged by most of the experts in Right, the right. Let's put it that way. Uh, so the government now, having attempted to get up a variety of wider, either economy-wide or at least sectoral-wide schemes to reduce emissions, and failed largely because of internal opposition from the very hardcore climate denier wing of the Liberal Party, which is which is not a small rump, it's a it's a very significant part of that party. Having not failed large enough to roll multiple party leaders, yeah, well, yeah. roll Malcolm Turnbull, roll twice. Malcolm Turnbull, yeah, that's right. So having failed to get any sort of wider, more systemic policy up, their only option was to continue with this fund. And so the headline announcement was $2 billion to continue this fund. And for a lot of people, that's all they would have heard. When it was announced... like a large amount of money. It's a huge amount of money. It's a massive amount of money. But at the time of the announcement, it was made clear that that was $2 billion over 10 years, which is much less. It's less than the government will spend advertising um, various programs annually, various programs in the lead up to the election. It's significantly less than even Tony Abbott's earlier version of the fund. Yep. It's only slightly more than the amount of money that the government spent opening and then closing the uh, Christmas Island Detention Centre for a photo opportunity for the Prime Minister. So it's a tight in terms of the scale of the challenge of rising, meeting climate change, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. Sorry, sorry, to clarify that, the $2 billion is... Oh. is over 10 years. Spread initially over 10 years, although mm. they later changed that to 15. to 15 years. And once you actually drill down into the amount that they're planning on spending in the next budget year... 43... 47 47. Mid-40s, yeah. a million dollars. It's significantly less than the 180-odd million that was spent opening and then closing Christmas Island, largely as a political stunt yeah. to uh, respond to the... Medivac bill where the government lost control of the agenda of the House and legislation was passed to extend a small measure of mercy to those being kept in our uh, offshore detention facilities who are desperately unwell and urgently need medical attention and the government sought to uh, do a piece of security theatre it's called really which is where you make a show of uh, doing something as though there's a real danger happening. And so part of that show was that they reopened yeah. a mothballed detention centre on Christmas Island, a remote island that's part of Australia's territory, so technically meets the provisions of the Medivac bill, but which actually is thoroughly inadequate to meet the medical needs of those who would have been evacuated under the provisions of the bill. But the opening and the closing of that centre on Christmas Island cost $180-odd million dollars um, and the benefit was a few photos of the Prime Minister walking around the centre yeah. um, and some headlines. Very expensive piece of political advertising, effectively, and roughly four times as much as the government is planning Prime on spending spend. on the emissions Reducing emissions fund in the next budget year. Yeah. And the government continues to defend inadequate emissions reduction targets, manifestly inadequate, and claim that they will meet those targets when they almost certainly won't. And even if they come close, that will largely be because 
uh, again through various trickery because Australia has managed to meet its emissions reduction obligations in the past and even do slightly better than the deals we negotiated for ourselves, we're choosing to bank those past performances as credits against future failure uh, yeah. in a way that every other developed nation in the world has said we won't do that. Because other than Ukraine. Oh, okay. I wasn't aware of that. So it's, it's us and Ukraine in yeah. the company there. But yes, you're right. It's, it's it, sounds like a, it sounds like a Eurovision final. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd watch that. So yes, using an accounting trick yeah. in order to make it look like they will meet targets that are themselves manifestly unjust. Yeah. In fact, if the level of ambition represented by Australia's current pledges under the Paris Climate Agreement, if that, that level of ambition was uh, shared by every nation in the world, then uh, scientists project we would be headed for a world 4.4 degrees warmer than pre-industrial average global temperatures. And that is a world so thoroughly transformed that scientists actually struggle to articulate and put numbers on uh, just how radically we would have departed from life as we know it. There would not be a, an ecosystem on the planet that was safe and and similar to what we even currently have mm. so you know look look at the massive changes that have been happening in the great barrier reef under the threat of rising ocean temperatures and multiply that across pretty much every ecosystem in the world yeah. and then multiply those impacts on ecosystems um, and watch them as they uh, spill out onto human systems as well so a 4.4 degrees world is a recipe for chaos and catastrophe and uh, on a global scale yeah and that's our level of national ambition that's right and even with the best case scenario, the Paris targets that because no, thankfully most other nations aren't subscribing to our low level of ambition. They're they're stepping up their ambition. Right. We're near the back of the pack. Yeah, very much so. And of course, the risks are not just creating that world four and a half degrees warmer by the end of the century, but that really anywhere after the warming we've already experienced, we're we're well in the area where unpredictable tipping points start to cascade. And we find ourselves, yes, 4.4 degrees by the end of the century, heading towards seven within the next century in ways that are just, as you say, virtually impossible to imagine and will be virtually impossible to survive. That's right. With large percentages of the land area of the planet literally unsurvivable for anyone not in effectively in a spacesuit, um, the level of temperatures that that would result in. But speaking of Paris, I want to draw out one other little detail that I, I... barely saw any coverage of in the budget, Mm -hmm. which has to do with what was really the linchpin that enabled the Paris Agreement. Because what had been holding back international negotiations for decades was the standoff between the wealthier nations of the world, the, the minority of nations who have done most of the emitting and benefited the most economically from that, and so are most responsible for the problem, and the majority of nations who are just starting to ramp up their emissions and see it as unfair that the wealthy nations would tell them that they're not allowed to take that path of development. And this, this for a long time, was a standoff that, you know, you can bring it down to a standoff between the US and China, but it was a more a, a broader standoff between the wealthier nations and the less wealthy nations. And part of finding a path through that was the development of a concept called the Green Climate Fund, And this was uh, basically a way for the wealthier nations to acknowledge that they did bear a greater responsibility uh, for the emissions already out there, but that they don't want the majority world nations who are just developing to follow the same dirty path of development, lest we cook the planet. And so it's a fund that the wealthier nations are to pay into in order to fund 
the development of the majority world in cleaner ways. So basically to pay for solar panels and, and wind turbines, but also to pay for the necessary adaptation to the harms and threats that are already apparent and will continue to emerge as the world warms. And so like all these things, it's a compromise and it's, you know, it wasn't nearly as big as it needed to be and it involved some hedging and you know, there are all kinds of reasons you might criticize the Green Climate Fund, but nonetheless, it was an important linchpin in achieving yeah. the agreement at Paris in 2015. Yeah. And back in 2009, when the fund was really getting established, Australia joined the rest of the minority world, the wealthy countries, in pledging to support this Green Climate Fund. And back in 2009, it was agreed that the goal was to reach 100 billion US dollars in funding annually. And this was considered way too little to really address the scale of the problem but the hope was that it might grow over time and it it did enable enough of an agreement to be reached at paris to to have achieved pretty much every nation in the world agreeing to mm. reduce their emissions now the question is it was never agreed how much each country should pay and so what slice of that should australia pay well australia has a higher per capita gdp and a higher per capita emissions than all but a handful of uh, much smaller countries so there's no question that morally Australia ought to be making contributions that are at least somewhat commensurate with our responsibility in causing the problem, yeah. and at least somewhat commensurate with our ability to help address it. Yeah. So even if we very roughly went with 2%, which is approximately the proportion of global GDP that Australia Australia's economy comprises, even though that ignores the fact that this is just a fund for wealthy nations, but so we're going with a very conservative figure here. So even if we just said 2%, that would be two billion US dollars annually that Australia would need to be contributing to uphold a very minimal understanding of our end of the linchpin of the Paris Agreement. Now also in 2010, as the Green Climate Fund was further being developed in the international negotiations, Australia agreed along with all the other relevant nations that the funds provided had to be new and additional. They couldn't simply be rebadged foreign aid, basically. This was an obvious rule to to bring in, designed to articulate and avoid countries acting in bad faith. Now, just a couple of years later, 2013, countries were starting to announce their contributions and Tony Abbott's coalition had recently come to power and they announced that Australia was going to contribute, but we were only going to contribute not 2 billion US, but 200 million Australian, which is about 140 million US. So that is you know, roughly a 14th of that very minimal amount that I suggested before. And then it came out a little later that Australia was actually going to pay for this out of our aid budget, which is precisely what that 2010 agreement had said wasn't allowed. It was effectively turning our money not into new and additional, but another massive cut from foreign aid. And so we were cheating. We were paying only a tiny fraction of what we'd agreed. And then we didn't even deliver. Rather than $200 million annually, turns out that between 2015 and 2018, we only contributed 200 million in total. Mm. That is about 50 million annually, or less than 1 50th of the amount that I mentioned as being at the lowest level of what might be considered our fair share. So that's all history. In, in the budget or the, the campaign launch uh, recently announced by the coalition, Scott Morrison has confirmed that Australia will no longer even provide this fig leaf of pretense and caring about the rest of the world or about the deadly harms that our emissions cause. Yeah, so the number you're saying you found in the budget papers is zero. Zero, right. yes. And Scott Morrison specifically said yeah. we will not continue yeah, these to support the Green Climate Fund. Yep. Yeah. Though he has said he is not going to pull out of Paris, he's also said the reason he's not going to pull out 
is because there is no legal mechanism to punish us for yeah. not even meeting our targets yeah. and, or, or to punish us for reneging on the Green Climate Fund, yeah. which we have now said we are going to do. Yeah. Oh, so this government has said it intends to Sorry. do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable, isn't it? it? As you say, to take a disgraceful situation and and make it even worse, just utter moral disgrace and degrade it even further, it's quite remarkable. And given the amounts already being put in, pretty much irrelevant, like not even a rounding error in the context of the Australian economy, let alone the Australian budget. So, yeah, $1.5 trillion economy a little bit more, but... Yeah, that is the amount that we'd put in over four years was, you know, only a little bit more than the cost of opening and closing Christmas Island yeah. once again. Yeah. That's right. And I, I mean, I, I dwelt on that point, not just because it didn't get much attention in the headlines, mm-hmm. but because I think it really is, is a in microcosm, a picture of the coalition's approach to climate policy as a whole. Yeah. Fig leaf is a generous assessment of it you know as you were saying with the emissions reduction fund there is a the barest of pretenses at seeking to have something on paper that they can point to and say look we're, we're dealing with that mm. so that voters who know that there's at least some kind of issue here can look at it and think well all right there's two billion dollars that sounds good i'll move on to the next issue mm. but it's it's the ability to cut through that spin that's lacking and yeah. it's you know we, we lack a media that will hold the government accountable for policies that are really just designed to obfuscate the fact that we don't have a policy. Yeah, and um, back to our early discussion about aid and and the way it gets framed in in surplus fetish budgeting, exactly the same is happening there where you have, yes, a, a pretense at attempting to do something in Australia that affects Australians, but not even the pretense to care about anyone outside of Australia. And I know the Prime Minister had a couple of uncomfortable conversations with uh, Alan Jones, a media performer here in Sydney, around the Green Climate Fund. Uh, And I know a number of people further right than the current government would refer to contributions to the Green Climate Fund as socialism masquerading as environmentalism, as if the concept of sharing and assisting other nations was morally objectionable. and Or even just the notion of keeping our word is, is objectionable. Yeah. This was a promise that we made yeah. to the international community. That's right. So when you see a government, in the case of emissions reductions, attempting to kind of use every trick in the book to try to make it seem as if they actually will meet their pledges and claiming to, you know, Australia meets its pledges, we have done in the past, we will do again, so they say, but not even not even attempting to justify that with the Green Climate Fund, simply to saying, no, we won't be contributing, I suppose, if the Prime Minister ever has those conversations with Alan Jones, they'll be more comfortable because he won't have to even even defend the notion that we should share anything with countries affected by climate change. Now, you, you, know, you, you, you prefer not to have swearing on this podcast, I guess, but this, like, this is honestly where actually I start getting reduced to just virtually inarticulate swearing. It just, yeah. it's so morally dumbfounding to me. It is so outrageous to me that I, I find it hard to conceive of the moral universe in which our leadership sit, in which those decisions can get taken and either justified or, or not even felt a need to justify when they have such obvious material harmful consequences to Australians and people who we have a neighbourly obligation towards, our neighbours in the Pacific and Asia and our global neighbours wherever they happen to be. But even if you just looked at our region, one of the most affected regions of the world related to climate-related disasters, I just find it completely mind-boggling. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I regularly uh, speak to groups of people about climate and, you know, my PhD research over the last decade has been into emotional responses to climate and that's something I often talk to people about and, uh, you know, I often ask people for their responses to learning about climate science and our current predicament and, the, you know, the responses come back with grief and feeling overwhelmed mm-hmm. and feeling powerless. It, uh, I find fewer people say angry than I expect. Mm. And I find that these days is one of my strongest yeah. emotions, actually. Yeah, me too. Is that there are systems and people responsible for this. This right. isn't just a tragedy, right. the way things are. There are people uh, profiting from right. the harm already being inflicted. That's right. This isn't just the meteor headed to Earth that's going to cause that's disruption right. on a planetary scale. We are the meteor. Uh, not, not, not we. Uh, Particular groups and... Uh, structures and institutions and the people and, and the people whose job it is to protect us from those threats and impacts are refusing to do that job or no sorry not refusing to do are actively working against yes um, thwarting that job yeah of protecting and securing Australians and others from the harmful impacts of climate change yeah and, uh, and mocking those and who mocking seem to do something right that's right turning up in Parliament with with coal right. and waving it around yeah. Or, or joking or, about the water lapping at the doors, and the doors of, of Pacific. Island yeah, and yeah. I agree with you that ought to raise absolute white hot fury amongst sensible, <coughs> morally decent human beings. When I first learned about climate change and its impacts on the poor, like I was disturbed then, mm. and I'm still as disturbed, probably more disturbed. But I'm angrier now than I was then, and I think part of that actually relates to the Overton window as we've been talking about it, where early framings, and still today for a lot of people, the dominant framing of climate change is an environmental issue caused by an aggregate of choices that we're all just tragically unable to stop ourselves making. You know, we have to drive, we have to turn on lights, we have to boil kettles and so on. And so climate change becomes this quite diffuse, like the responsibility for it is, is very diffuse. The responses to it are, are kind of very individual and consumer oriented. I should you know, consume less, I should switch off lights more, I should drive less, etc. None of which are bad things. But in that way of framing it, nobody's responsible. There's no one to be angry at. But increasingly, uh, as we kind of alluded to at the start, with, with now um, citizens groups taking nations and corporations to court for their failure to protect people against the ravages of climate change or contributing to the storms that have devastated, you know, hurricanes and storms that have devastated communities. Increasingly, we've become aware that actually, no, the responsibility for the climate change we're experiencing rests in the hands of a relatively small number of corporate entities who have extracted and exported the coal, oil and gas that are fueling the climate crisis we're experiencing. And so that anger actually becomes a more understandable uh, and logically appropriate response in a way that wasn't as clear in terms of the, the public discourse and the framing of climate change as an issue certainly a decade ago and even quite recently. For me, anger has become a stronger emotional response I have to the issue of climate change as it's become clearer the people who have the most responsibility for it. It's not just us in general, humans in general. It's not even just us the wealthiest people on the planet in developing nations in general, it's actually a much smaller subset of people who have actively worked to um, make the most money out of fossil fuels, despite knowing for a fact the harm that it was doing and would continue to do. Yeah, and with alternatives available. 
And with alternatives available and part of the playbook was obviously shut those down, kind of remove them as thinkable options as yeah. quickly as, as possible. Yeah, keep them outside of the Overton window. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Crazy greenies with their dangerous wind turbines and so on. Yes, I, I agree that similarly for me, the, the component of my emotional response uh, that is comprised of anger has increased, even as my distress and you know how disturbing our plight becomes also increases. Mm. We spent a while talking about criticising quite strongly the coalition's climate policy. Speaking of the Overton window and being fair and balanced, let's shift to the other edge of that window as it currently exists in mainstream Australian climate discourse, the Australian Labor Party, because they have also recently released more details on their climate policy. A lot of this was foreshadowed towards the end of last year back in November during their uh, national conference, Hmm. Um, but they've now released more of the details of it. And it's a bit of a mixed bag. The headline is, it's significantly better than the coalition's policy, but it's still wildly inadequate to address the scale of this challenge. So digging into it a little bit more, the overall headline target of a 45% reduction in emissions by 2030 from a 2005 baseline is streets ahead of the coalition's paltry 26 or 28% target. So that's good. And unlike the coalition, who, as we've said, have very few actual mechanisms to achieve their target beyond some dodgy accounting and some hopeful throwing of money at the polluters, there are there are aspects of the ALP policy that are mechanisms that would actually reduce our emissions further. So that's, that's a good thing. It's a policy that's actually trying to do stuff, not just look like it's doing stuff. Right. It also includes, importantly, a commitment to net zero emissions by 2050, which, to be fair, is probably too late for us as a nation, given that we are one of the wealthier nations. The world as a whole probably needs to be heading towards net zero by 2050. Australia ought to be ahead of that curve. But at least that's a crucial acknowledgement that the long-term goal is complete decarbonisation. And that's really helpful for long-term planning because a lot of the pieces of fossil fuel infrastructure that get built or proposed Mm. or extended these decisions are made decades out. And so to be able to say, by 2050, we're aiming at net zero, that means if you're building a new piece of infrastructure that you hope to still be profiting from in 2050, then that's going to be incompatible with that goal of net zero emissions. Unfortunately, though, some of the less savoury sides of the ALP policy, the ALP continues to treat climate, both rhetorically and in substance, as something less than the planetary-scale civilization-threatening emergency that the science is telling us that it is. And so it continues to send their message to the electorate that the consensus of experts who say that it is a planetary emergency ought not to be taken with due seriousness. That This is something that with some relatively modest policy um, adjustments can be kept in hand. And I think that's a dangerous message to send to the electorate. Also, they've set a renewable energy target of 50% by 2030, which sounds pretty good but actually represents a step down in progress from our current trajectory. If you take the current rate of uh, rolling out renewable uh, capacity in Australia just the last few years, so that the current speed at which we're putting up solar panels and wind turbines and so on, we will actually be 100% renewable by 2032. And so for Labor to meet their target of 50% by 2030, we would actually slow down. down. 
Um, I mean, part of that, not to defend the policy at all, but I mean, part of that is hanging on to policies developed years ago, failing to acknowledge how little they've kept up with the actual pace of change. That's right. Uh, this is something a lot of people still underestimate is just how yep. much the technical and economic context for renewables has shifted in the last decade. The prices have dropped dramatically. Uh, the ability of engineers to be confident that they can handle large levels of renewable in a complex grid without breaking the grid um, much higher than they used to be. And it really is much more thinkable that we can we can get to 100% renewable yeah. within a decade. Yeah. That's not pie-in-the-sky thinking. Uh, and in fact, there are already nations getting close to that. Really, the, the, the two worst parts of the policy, though, I think, one is that the 45% uh, decarbonisation target by 2030 is better than the coalition, but it's still really a failure of uh, responsibility for Australia to be taking seriously the kind of contribution that we need to be making yeah. to maintain anything like a just and stable world. Yeah. To justify that level of ambition, the Labor Party explicitly draw upon the authority of the Climate Change Authority, uh, which, as I said, the coalition... Uh, as you said, the coalition tried to um, get rid of entirely, and then um, I pointed out they, they weren't able to do that, but they have still managed to stack it uh, effectively. This body that is meant to be an independent body uh, advising the government on science and economics and geopolitics to give the government an indication of what Australia's fair share ought to be, what our, what our targets ought to be. Uh, the government doesn't need to follow that authority, but it needs to give an account of why it's not following it. That's the basic idea behind the Climate Change Authority. Back in 2015 was the last time the Climate Change Authority, before it got completely stacked issued uh, by the government, the last time it issued report. an actual yeah. target, and it yeah. only set a 2025 target. For 2030, it gave a range. Right. And that range went from 45%, which is Labor's, the figure Labor has picked, up to 63%. Right. So what Labor have done is they've taken the very lowest number mentioned right. as a possibility yeah. by the Climate Change Authority four years ago. Yeah and have said that this is what the Climate Change Authority recommended. Yeah. When actually, during those four years, the chances that uh, an independent assessment of Australia's necessary contribution would have done anything but gone up are very low. That is, yeah. I think, in those yeah. four years, it's, it's... As you say, the range yeah. was already... That's the lowest point of a range that was set at a time when... Yes, there, there are good reasons for thinking that that range ought to be... Increased. Increased. And so that 45% is really trying to scrape the bottom of the barrel of what's the least yeah. that is remotely plausible it it's very it's i mean in terms of policy making it's very much have your cake and eat it too kind of policy making yes. we we want to take action on climate change and there and as you say there are some things that are genuinely making progress from where we're at but we are starting from such an appalling state that it would be difficult for a party not to be able to do better than where we're currently at, while at the same time setting up conditions that will extend the life of, of existing fossil fuel infrastructure, protect large um, polluters from having to face up to the consequences of their decisions and their actions. So it, it's as business friendly as you can make a climate change policy. It protects the Labor Party, no doubt, from, from attacks from the... Which are already happening, of course, about yeah, well, the economy-wrecking policy. Yeah, I'm less convinced that it does protect them from those attacks because I think the coalition... Will make those, those attacks, attacks anyway. No, ab- and so <laughs> why not actually have a policy that might do something? Absolutely. Um, be that as it may, that the second and in some ways larger problem with the ALP's policy is that it continues to ignore our coal and uh, gas exports. Mm-hmm. So it... it treats our responsibility as finishing the moment that the ships with our coal and gas leave our shores, which is a very limited way, I think, of looking at this issue. 
It's a way that is enshrined into the international negotiations that countries are responsible for the emissions that actually happen within their borders. Yeah. But I think it, it misses the reality of how these decisions actually get made. Australia is a major player in both the coal and the liquefied natural gas markets. Uh, we have a larger share of the seaborne coal market than Saudi Arabia does of the international oil market. We are the largest exporter of coal in the world. We punch way above our weight here. We're not just some tiny little on the margins country that uh, the government sometimes like to present us as. Our coal exports dwarf our domestic emissions mm. so that even with a more ambitious domestic target, without addressing the contributions we're making through uh, sending coal off uh, around the world, particularly to East Asian countries and, and South Asian countries, we're only looking at half the picture, or less than half the picture, a third yeah. of the picture of what we're actually contributing. Yeah. This is fossil carbon that's being dug up in Australia that the Commonwealth has uh, legal authority over, uh, you know, all mineral resources, um, the government um, has control over, and so the government could, if they wished, just stop giving out licences to dig up fossil carbon. Yeah. That they don't do that is at the heart of the failure of Australian climate policy. Yeah, that's a difficult situation to be in because there are genuine, as you say, given the, given the size of the exports, um, there are genuine economic consequences for choosing to scale down uh, Australia's exports of, of coal. Yeah, once again, most Australians radically... Overestimate how much right. how much coal contributes, and it's about one percent. Yeah, and a brilliant piece of a brilliant piece of intervention in the in shifting the Overton window by the by the fossil fuel industry and the mining lobby particularly to make us feel that where once Australia was built on the on the sheep's back, it's now carried on the miners' back. Yeah, some significant constituencies who matter to the ALP, both unions related to the mining sector, yep. but also Labor have seen one of their prime ministers knocked off essentially on the back of a very well-targeted, very well-funded advertising campaign by the mining lobby. So Kevin Rudd um, knocked off. To some extent, he brought it on himself, but it was a very well-funded, well-targeted effort to destabilise his leadership and further action on climate policy at that moment. So it's a difficult... like Again, not defending it, but it's a genuinely difficult one with some economic consequences. But you're right neither party will actually name it. So they will all say, oh, we, we expect to be, you know, coal will be part of the mix for decades. The global economy will need Australian coal. They'll even lie and say Australian coal is substantially cleaner than, than coal you can get elsewhere. So it's better that we export our coal than some others kind of fill the space if we step back. So yeah, we're, we're caught in this, in this nightmare situation where actually nobody can really speak truth in the area for fear of being attacked, of being targeted, yeah, let's name that fear for what it is. This is the corruption of Australian politics by a small number of very powerful individuals and groups um, who have an outsized say yeah. in decisions made uh, about our national and uh, global good. Yeah. That's what's at stake here, that if governments and political parties are in fear of a, uh, a well-funded lobby, then you have the tail wagging the dog. You have the common good being eclipsed by the interests yeah. of uh, the very few. Yeah. You know, you have billions of dollars speaking louder than billions of voices. Yeah. Or at a national level, you know, millions of dollars louder than millions of voices. Yeah. This is policy being made for the benefit of the few, not the many. Yes. Just, just to spell that out. Yeah. I think no, it's I... important to say because it doesn't get said enough. You, yeah. you get these, ref- these coded references to the power of the coal lobby and so on. But what we're really talking about here is a fundamental corruption of democracy. Yeah. That we don't have decisions being made in the interests of the many 
by the many, for the many. Yeah. Um, but we have interests, we have decisions that are for the benefit of the very few. Right. And, and for reasons which are transparent and accessible to those who elect our leaders, yeah, those reasons and interests get hidden away. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So talk about two major parties. Do you want to say anything about the rest of the political spectrum? Yeah, I mean, I was reflecting on it as well. And this, we've painted a really bleak, we've painted a really okay. bleak picture. And, and to some extent, I think justly, Australian politics on climate policy in the last decade particularly, but over the last 30 years, has, has really been appalling. Just a litany of failure, yeah. um, lost opportunities uh, and neglect and willful, malicious abandonment of responsibility. But having said that, and if we paint the Overton window as just, you know, what lies between Labor and the Liberals, it really doesn't look great. In fact, the policy debate is narrower this election than mm. it was last election. Yeah. So it looks like things have gotten worse, actually, at a political level and a policy level. But I'm more optimistic this election than I was last election, largely for two reasons. Public, all the tracking of public opinion about public concern about climate change says that levels of public concern and levels of desire to see strong action on climate change are roughly back at where they were in 2007. They're roughly back at in the grip of the millennium drought, seeing Howard digging his heels in to say, I won't sign the Kyoto Protocol, which was as meaningless an act as that was, such a powerful symbol of an yeah. unwillingness to face up to reality. Yeah. We're back at that level of concern. So public opinion has moved again, despite the best efforts of um, many of our political leaders to keep things uh, in their comfortable space. And the other thing that really, really gives me a lot of heart is every independent standing in a conservative seat, a rural seat like Indi in Victoria, where Cathy McGowan stood and won a couple of elections ago, mm -hmm. um, Wagga at the state election where uh, Joe McGurk stood as an independent and won a by-election and then was re-elected at the, the state election. Wentworth, Wentworth Karen Phelps here, here, yep. Yeah. And every electorate where independents or former liberal, can former liberal members are standing as independents, so in Josh Frydenberg's seat and Greg Hunt's seat and Tony, Abbott. Tony Abbott's seat, all of these candidates who themselves are quite conservative, they're either ex-national party or ex-liberal party, or they're largely aligned with those parties in terms of their own outlook on, on uh, the world, the one platform above all others which they have stood on and been elected on is we will end the climate denial and we will stand up for and speak up for strong action on climate change. And in conservative electorates, um, wealthy electorates, people are getting elected on those platforms. So I think the Overton window has shifted. The political space has shifted. Neither, neither major political party have yet had to fully reckon with the consequences of that because we're only just, you know, the government uh, lost its majority at the last election. It became more tenuous with the election of Karen Phelps. After this election, actually, I think we will see a crossbench as big, if not slightly bigger, than currently. And the parliament will have to deal with that really strong conviction of those independents and the primary reason they were elected to take action on climate change. And I think they will push the conversation. And the other thing that, uh, that gives me hope related to kind of public opinion shifting is if people my age are angry about it, and if we're talking about the fact that people our age don't express as much anger or fury as, as you might expect or hope, that they would. People a generation younger than us and my kids and people their age are already expressing that anger and fury that their futures, that the world they will inhabit, um, that the Australia they will inherit is being fundamentally shaped in ways that are contrary to their interests, to their desires, to their intent. 
and they're standing up and saying we we don't accept we just don't accept your right to inflict that upon us and we'll take action. And it's ironic, of course, when we're talking about the school strikes, the, the student yeah. strikes against climate, a global phenomenon. It's like it's ironic, given that we, we started talking about the failure of Parliament to sit more than a couple of weeks this year, that Parliament can decide to only sit for two weeks for four or five months in a year. And yet when students decide to take one day out to express their concern about the most fundamental planet-shaping issue that we all face and that they will bear the brunt of, they're criticised by the same politicians who abrogated their responsibilities and decided to stay home rather than face a difficult situation inside Parliament. That's right. Parliament's effectively been on strike for some time. For months, exactly. No, and that that was a really inspiring moment. I was there with uh, one of my children and uh, we were part of 1.4 million people, largely young people, in over 2,000 towns and cities in over 100 countries around the world. And it was... I go to a lot of rallies about a variety of different things, and I think it was one of the loudest, most emotionally engaged rallies that I've been to. My daughter learnt quite a bit of French at the rally. Uh, (laughs) But as you say, these these are young people. Out of school, but still an educational experience. That's right, that's right. But yes, anger, I think, would, would be the dominant emotion yeah. at, at that rally. And that often gets framed as a negative thing and it's too easy for the people who are opposed to uh, you know, the intents, the desires of those who are angry and speaking up about what they're angry about. It's too easy to paint it as unrealistic, as uh, sorry, unreasonable or harmful, but it's a really powerful, in its place, it's a really powerful energising emotion that recognises an injustice and energises people for action against that injustice. So, yeah, I'm glad to hear that, that there was a strong sense of righteous anger at yeah. that rally. Yeah, and I mean, I, I welcome any discussion about what the harms of a more aggressive climate policy might be and, you know, comparing them to the harms of our current yeah. policies. Because it, it's hard to imagine a climate policy more harmful yeah. than our current course. Yeah, and that, and that was one of the points that the opposition leader made in referring to their climate policy, that, yes, there are costs to deciding to take a more aggressive, more positive policy to tackle climate change. But when weighed up against the costs of not doing that, they pale in comparison. What are the costs of actually continuing to fail to address climate change? That's right. And you can make the same comparison between the ALP's policy and the policy of other minor parties. Mm-hmm that have considerably more ambitious policies about transitioning completely out of coal, not just domestically, but coal export, shifting to 100% renewables by 2030, um, having no new coal mines, no new coal power plants, and completely seeking to effect a just and rapid Mm. uh, transition out of coal for all those who currently do work Mm. in that industry. Uh, and, within a decade, yeah, and and you know there are multiple minor parties that have variations on that. The Greens amongst them, but there are others as well. There are there are more than just two options yeah. that we have here. The Overton window doesn't extend no. from no we, fig we, leaf we, to inadequate. We were just fl- we were just framing it in that way for for the purposes of the conversation. And it should be pointed out, or we should note as well, that this is not just a political policy discussion. That ending coal exports and no new coal mines has been the explicit request of our Pacific neighbours. They have, at a diplomatic level, asked Australia as a powerful regional neighbour and, and friend to big act, brother. big brother, to act 
for the good of all and end, certainly first of all, end investment in any new coal infrastructure and second of all then end coal exports and our, our dependence on fossil fuels. And these are also some of the demands at the global, the, the climate strike, the, the right. strike for climate. Right, so it, it, it goes beyond a political party and what policies you might prefer or which political yeah. party you feel you identify with. Our neighbours across the Pacific, who don't map onto an Australian political spectrum in most cases, have asked us as a matter of neighbourliness, as a matter of concern for their well-being and their, their survival, their ongoing existence as island nations in the Pacific, to end our use and export of coal. Even outside of policy discussions, I think it's the least as a neighbour we need to be doing. Our third segment is What Do We Do? We've been speaking about what our Pacific neighbours have been asking us to do, what school kids have been demanding that we do, what the science suggests we really need to do. Mm. But what can listeners of this podcast do to make a contribution towards a more just and sane world, a, a one where we still have a habitable planet in a few decades' time? And as usual, we're going to aim for three different suggestions. One, an immediate action that we can do today that's achievable and perhaps symbolic, but a good start. One, that is how do we learn more about the issues that we've been talking about. And third, what's a more ambitious life commitment towards justice that we might be able to make. So for an immediate action, I'm going to suggest that you could go and check out the policy platforms of the various parties. But as we've been saying, sometimes it's hard to cut through the spin. That if, if you haven't been following closely, it can be hard to know, you know, is, is the $2 billion offered in the Coalition's uh, Emissions Reduction Fund actually impressive or not at all? And so instead of checking out the policy platforms, or as, long as, as well as checking out the party policy platforms on climate, my immediate action is uh, to suggest that you might like to subscribe to a good information or news source about climate policy in Australia. And there are a number of different good places to go, I think. But today I'm going to recommend Renew Economy. It's a website that uh, particularly focuses on climate and energy news in Australia and some of the policy debates around them. Obviously, with Renew in the name, it comes down on the side of renewable energy quite a bit. So, you know, sometimes there may be some bias that you need to take into account on that front. But it is a, a good source of uh, news and analysis of Australian climate policy and developments in, in that sphere in general. Mm. I'd also suggest signing up to one of the major climate NGOs because they often try to keep people up to date on major developments, major opportunities to contribute to public debate, major actions that might be taken collectively where you can cease to just be an individual but you can be part of a, a, a bigger movement. And again, there are a number of different groups that are doing good work in this space, hmm. whether it's 350.org, Extinction Rebellion, Frontline Action on Coal, Australian Conservation Foundation, Greenpeace. You know, there, there are many uh, organisations in this space, as well as many local climate groups. I'd say pick one and sign up to their updates and just try to keep an eye on it. Hmm. That's a very simple thing that you can do today. Can I throw one in that I've consistently found helpful uh, for raising the scale of the challenge and cutting through to actually identify ways in which we really are experiencing a crisis, which is Climate Code Red, also yeah. an Australian kind of source of news and analysis. It's effectively a blog, but it's a blog by someone who knows what he's talking about. Yeah, and certainly gets a lot of external support for writing some pretty considered summations of what the most recent science is saying yep. and why it's of more concern than you're going to hear in mainstream media or political discourse. Yeah, that's right. And that uh, has a particular focus on latest developments in the science, putting it together 
joining the dots and seeing the big picture yeah. rather than specifically analysing the policy platforms, say, of the parties. Right. There's, there's a little bit of that. Yeah. Uh, but that, that is a, a good source that I've uh, used myself at, at times. Ben, I think you have a book recommendation for us. Yeah, when we started this, we struggled to think of one book and I, I still haven't been able to think of just if I could only give you one book recommendation. But one that's really good, a recent book by a guy called Duncan Green, is How Change Happens. Duncan Green's a policy researcher and advisor for Oxfam, has worked as a practitioner in community development in Latin America, and has been involved in either campaigning or thinking and researching how does social and political change happen. It's an in-depth book. It's not Australia-specific. It looks at situations in, in developing country contexts. So how does change happen in a, in a township in South America? How does it change in a local government in uh, Latin America, etc.? And he's really articulating ways in which social power of informed, empowered citizens, activist citizens, able to hold an empowered and responsive state accountable in the context of addressing agreed challenges, how that translates into ways that we can make significant change that benefit particularly the poor, but benefit all of us. So for an overall big picture, it's not an activist handbook. It's not a how-to, but there'll be lots of inspiring. There are lots of inspiring stories and insights into ways that we can make change. How Change Happens by Duncan Green. Excellent. That's not one I've read myself, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to put it on my to read list. And for a more ambitious life commitment towards justice, we've been talking about the Overton window and how the way that the media treats this question of climate policy in Australia tends to assume that the, the, the boundaries of reasonable debate are from fig leaf to insufficiency. And for those who might find that incredibly frustrating, I really want to see a very major shift in that Overton window so that we're not debating about whether we ought to be cutting nothing or just a little bit, mm. but we are debating what's what's the best method for rapidly and justly doing at least our fair share in transitioning to a cleaner, more stable world. There are all kinds of ways we can contribute to that. One very practical, very personal, a very challenging way is by having in-depth conversations with people. Conversations of quality and length where we seek to change someone else's mind. Now, that might not be finding your climate-denying uncle and uh, trying to take them down over dinner. Trust me, that that climate-denying uncle has more YouTube links to throw at you than you do to throw (laughs) at him. So, yeah, be careful. That's right. The the Overton window is more often pulled than pushed. So it's often more useful to find people who are already sympathetic, who already have some sense that this is an issue, but who might not yet really grasp just how urgent, how large, how far the Overton window needs to shift if we want to have a habitable planet in a few decades time. And so my challenge is to ask you, identify one, two, three people in your life that you're going to try to have a quality conversation about climate, to seek to persuade them to take climate policy as a top-level issue in their evaluation of the parties. Pick someone who is persuadable. Pick someone who you have a good enough relationship with that their trust of you is going to be a reason for them to take this seriously Mm. and someone who doesn't currently take climate as a high priority. Mm. I I just wanted to ask you a question because you framed it as have a conversation with someone and see if you can change their mind, which sounds like it might just be a matter of have a certain opinion about an aspect of climate science. You know, you're going to inform them and get them to have a different opinion. But you're talking about more than that, aren't you? You're talking about not just change your mind, but 
have a conversation that leads to you doing something together. Yes, yes, that's right. The goal is to invite them into a movement, really. Mm. It's to say, you may already have an inkling about this, you may have a sense of unease, you may even have some dread. Yeah. Come and join with millions of others who are seeking to move us faster yeah. in the direction yeah. of safety, stability, justice and peace. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important. Well, thanks for coming along today, Ben. It's been great to have a chat with you. I really cherish these conversations that I've had with each of the conversation partners. And I look forward to hearing from listeners as you give your thoughts and reflections and insights and advice. Today, I've been talking with Ben Thurley. The producer is Simon Bunstead. I'm Byron Smith, and this is The Good Dirt.